All right, well, good evening. We're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you for being here tonight to uh, session eight of Experiencing God. And um, so uh, we're glad you're here, glad that you've made it out. And if you uh, have your book, you can turn over to uh, the beginning of section eight, which starts on uh, page 155. So uh, Dad had asked me uh, yesterday to, uh, to, to kind of help out. He got in kind of uh, late this week, and, and so uh, it's, uh, he, it's me again. Uh, tonight and so he'll be back ready to go next Sunday night but I told him I would be glad to help out and and uh, just facilitate uh, through uh, what we we, what we discussed and what we read through the week but I want to pray for us and then we'll get started got a couple of uh, uh, got a video I want to show you that's non it's related but it's not part of our our main DVD so we won't have time for that but it's a really really good um, video about an uh, important person that you met this week in your reading. And so I uh, just want to show you that. So let's get started. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get going. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for uh, just this time that we can come together tonight in our discipleship time. And God, just uh, be together. And, and uh, God, we just uh, we thank you for just allowing us to have this opportunity. So many people don't. And uh, God, we just uh, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your mercy uh, in it, I pray God tonight as we dive into session eight, God as we we look as we look this week about adjustments that we in order to experience you we've got to make adjustments and and so Lord you've spoken to me this week and I know you've spoken to a lot of people and I pray God that we would be obedient in those adjustments that you're calling us to make uh, in our lives and so Lord I, I pray tonight as as I facilitate and as I, as I as we share each other and how you spoke to the week God I just I pray for your spirit just to fall fresh on, on us tonight um, God just give me the words to say and the right spirit to say it say those words in and, and God just uh, I pray for a spirit of humility upon all of us tonight and go with us throughout the remainder of our time in, in Jesus name I pray amen um so tonight we begin session eight, and this was the session that we looked at uh, last week. And uh, just to kind of a little bit of a recap from last Sunday night, uh, if you were not here, uh, we dealt with last unit with the crisis of belief and how when we experience God, uh, there is always a crisis of belief. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, may not be an overwhelming crisis, like a one-day, one-time crisis, but God may use things over a period of time to bring us to uh, that, uh, that time to where we truly experience Him. But after a crisis of belief, and um, well, I'll tell you what, let's go back before we get started, just kind of review on the very back page of your book. Let's go over uh, the, uh, the direction of experiencing God that we begin with, just going over those real quick um, and uh, kind of review you. But number one, of course, God is always at work around you, uh, and we've just got to look for opportunities to see where God is at work. God is working, and God's putting us in those situations, and we have to look. Um, I have to look for those situations to where God is working. Uh, then God pursues a continuing love relationship with us that is real and personal, and that's what He wants. Uh, he doesn't want a, um, you know, a, um, just a relationship that doesn't mean anything. You don't spend a lot of time with Him. He wants a meaningful love relationship, and that's the, the second step in experiencing Him. So God's always at work, looking for those ways that God is working, uh, then pursuing a love relationship with us uh, that's real and personal. Number three, God invites us to become involved with Him in His work. All right, so we get an invitation 
to be involved where God is at work. Number four, God speaks by the Holy Spirit. We looked at this through multiple days or multiple sessions. God speaks to us by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, through prayer, through circumstances, and through the local church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. And then number five, kind of what we dealt with last week, was God's invitation for us to work with him always leads to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. And so when God is, is calling us and leading us to where he is working, it most all the, all the time involves a crisis of belief that, that leads and requires us to put faith and action into practice. And then that brings us tonight to number six, where we must make, when we have, those, when we have that crisis of belief, it's time for us to make major adjustments in our life to join God in what he is doing. So that's where we're at tonight, is adjusting to life to God. In that crisis of belief, now we have to make those adjustments. That's, that's the point where we're at tonight. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you don't, you can, you can look at page 154 to our memory verse for the week, kind of short, but it comes from Luke chapter 14, 33. Remember what we're, we're dealing with. We're dealing with, we're going to have to make some adjustments in our life. Life cannot be the same. If we're really going to experience who God is, those adjustments are going to have to come. And so Luke 14, 33 says, Every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. What a powerful verse. Luke 14, 33. Every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. Basically meaning that you can't do life like you want to do it. In order to follow Christ, you've got to make major adjustments to do what he wants you to do, to do what he wants me to do. It may not be what everybody else thinks you should do, but God's not like everybody else. God calls us in this crisis of belief and then says, hey, here's the crisis. Here's the, are you going to believe me? This is what I'm calling you to do. Make the adjustments because I'm working in your life and you will experience me. Now, uh, at the very beginning of page 155, um, you, you saw a story about, uh, Dr. Blackerby writes about a young person, a young couple sacrifice. And he says, when a need arose in one of our mission churches 40 miles away, I asked the church to pray that God would call someone to move to that community to serve as the lay pastor of the mission. Okay, so they're forming this mission church, and Dr. Blacker is looking for someone to serve as pastor in this, in this mission church. A young couple responded and said they would move there to serve. Because the husband was attending the university, they had very little money. Okay? If they took up residence in the mission community, he would have to commute 80 miles a day to the university. I knew they couldn't afford to do it. I said, no, I can't let you do that and name several reasons why that would not be fair or practical. And this young couple was deeply grateful that God had saved them. Look at this. The young man looked at me and said, Pastor, don't deny, I underline this, I underlined this this week, don't deny me the opportunity to sacrifice for my Lord. Don't deny me the opportunity to sacrifice for my Lord. That statement crushed me, Dr. Blackerby said. How could I refuse? Yet I knew this couple would have to pay a high price because our church had been obedient to start new missions. We had prayed for God to call a lay pastor, so I needed to be open to God's answering our prayers in an unexpected way. God answers in unexpected ways. 
When the couple responded with a deep sense of commitment and personal sacrifice, our church affirmed their sense of call and God provided for their needs. God provided for their needs. That's big. What, what I could not have known at the time was that God was preparing this young couple for decades of faithful and fruitful ministry in the future. Did you see an adjustment there this couple made? And the statement that the young pastor said, he said, Pastor, don't deny me the opportunity to sacrifice for my Lord. This was ultimate sacrifice, driving 80 miles a day to the university, taking on this mission church, having a family, no doubt, having a marriage, ultimate sacrifice. But that's what God calls all of us to do in order to experience Him. Going back to Luke 14, 33, every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. That's powerful. Really powerful. Let's look over to day one as we started where adjustments are necessary. So we're at a crisis of belief. God's calling us to do something. He's speaking to us. It's big. It's out of the ordinary because that's who God is. And then God's saying, okay, now you are to make adjustments. Just like the young couple made adjustments here. Okay? Sacrificing you know, a lot of things to be obedient to who God, what God wanted them to do. We're to do the same. Uh, page 156, I bracketed this out, and it's, it's right under where it says day one. And I, and I really love this statement. It says, you cannot stay where you are and go with God. Let me repeat that. You cannot stay where you are and go with God. If God's calling us, me included, this is me. This is big time this week for me. Uh, if God's calling us, we can't stay where we're at. We have to be obedient to go where he is leading us. have to make those adjustments but we have to be obedient. Um, every time I underline this kind of midway uh, second paragraph there on page 156, every time God spoke to people in Scripture about something He wanted to do through them, major adjustments were required. You go back through all of Scripture. You go to, to Moses. You go to Abraham. You go to all these different people that we see in Scripture. And when God wanted them to do something, major adjustments had to be made. God wanted... Abraham to lead his people. What did Abraham have to do? Pick up everything he had, right? In a, in a land that he had, was very you know, satisfied in, he was very comfortable in, and then he picked up and he left, and he didn't even know where he was going. He had to make an adjustment. He had to make a big adjustment, and that's what he did. Look at the adjustments that Moses had made. You know, he, he, he didn't, you know, he was just a man you know, leading millions and millions of people out of Egypt. It's going to make some major adjustments. It's going to take some major adjustments in his life, uh, sacrifices in his life. But you look at God getting the glory in everything. And that's what he does. He uses us. He uses us in the overall purpose of his will uh, to bring about his glory. Number one question here, and, and you can help out with it if you, if you have something, but it, it says, why is it necessary to make adjustments before you can join God in his activity? Why is it necessary to make those adjustments? God's bringing you to a crisis of belief, and he's saying, okay, make these adjustments. Why is that necessary before you can join God in his activity? Anybody, anybody want to mention anything there that you had written down? Okay, yeah, yeah, you, you got to get on the same page. I put it shows that you're truly believing who God is. That's what it does. It shows, and God knows that, okay, you're, you're believing me. God's saying, okay, you know, and getting on the same page. Anybody else want to mention what you put? Okay. 
if you, if, you, if you didn't hear what Corey said, if you, can, if you don't adjust, he can't prepare you. And that's big. What he's leading you and what he's leading us to do. Once you have, this is right under there, once you have come to believe God, you demonstrate your faith by what you do. Okay? Let me re re repeat that. Once you have come to believe God, you demonstrate your faith by what you do, your actions. A response is required. Okay? That's, that's big. It's got to be a response. You can't just sit there. I can't just sit there. Okay? God's telling you to do this. You've got to act. That's the faith and the obedience part. can't just stand back and watch because you're not going to experience God. He's, not, he's leading you. It requires that faith and that action. Faith, uh, the, the block there, uh, right under number one, faith and the arrow to actions. Action is adjustments plus obedience. In your own words, summarize what is stated in the preceding box. And I just put this. Faith is followed by action. The adjustment plus obedience equals action. So faith is followed by action. God's revelation is your invitation to adjust your life to Him. If you look over on page 157, and there's countless uh, number of people who made adjustments. Noah, Abram, Moses, David, Ruth, uh, Jonah. Think about that. Had to leave his home, overcome a major prejudice uh, in the land in order to preach in Nineveh. Mary had to renounce her vision for engagement and matrimony to give birth. Saul, think about that. Saul, later Paul, had to completely change direction in his life to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So these people had to make major adjustments in order to be obedient in what God was calling them to do. Um, the, the, the quote there to the right says, Adjusting one's life to God is well worth the cost. Adjusting one's life to God is well worth it. It may not seem worth it to people around you. The world's different, right? But we, when you and I adjust our life to God, it's well worth the cost. Your scripture memory verse for this unit speaks of a major adjustment that must be made to be a disciple of Jesus. Go back to that verse. Let me reread it real quick. It says, Every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. And that's powerful. You've got, to, you've got to adjust to what God is doing, not holding on to what this world has. Because, I mean, folks, like we talked about last week, it's, it's over. You know, 100 years, you're going to be somewhere, okay? And it's probably not going to be here, and it's not going to matter. But what matters is how we've adjusted our lives in the now for spiritual things and what God's calling us to do. It says, have you ever come to a place in your life, number four there, page 157, where you are willing to yield everything to God in order to follow Him. And this may be a personal, you know, answering this in your own personal time, but has there ever been a, have you ever come to a place in your life where you were willing to yield everything to God in order to follow Him? And number five says, what is an adjustment you are afraid God might ask you to make if you truly get serious about your walk with him. I'm afraid God might ask me to, and of course there's a blank there. Brother Philip? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Pick up, move all on the other side of the world. Hey, you know, God calls people to do that. And, you know, you have different things in your quiet time this week, maybe what you're dealing with. And, and I mean, when it's time to get really serious with God, I mean, when you ask him and you totally surrender, I mean, will, will I do it? Will you do it? That's the question. What he's calling us to do. It takes obedience. It takes action. 
It says, um, if you want to be a disciple, bottom of page 157, if you want to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, you have no choice. Now, think about that. If you're a disciple of Jesus, I'm, and, and, and what that means is a follower of Christ, then we have no choice in the matter. What God is calling us to do, we have no choice to buck Him. We have no choice to say no because Lord means Lord, right? Lord means someone that has all power and control over our lives, and we can't say no. I mean, you must leave where you are to follow Him. You must make major alterations in your life to follow God until you are ready to make any change necessary to follow and obey, then you're going to be stuck. I'm going to be stuck. And that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Your greatest single, my greatest single difficulty in following God may come at this point of full surrender. It's big. Now, you see the story there, and we won't take time to, to, to read that from Elijah and the rich young, rich young ruler there invited to, to join God in his activity. But go over to page um, uh, 159, and uh, let's talk about... Um, well, let me, I'll tell you what, let's read these in parallel. That's fine. This is pretty good stuff. So uh, it says, the Lord said to Elijah, if you'll, if you'll look at this, Elijah, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. This comes from 1 Kings 19. When you arrive, you're to, to anoint Haziel, a king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel, Mahala as prophet in your place. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up with to him, threw his cloak over around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Go back, he replied, for what I have done to you. So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. So this was Elijah anointing a new prophet, Elisha. Okay, so that's the picture there that we see Elijah anointing Elisha. Now, if you'll fast forward to Luke in 18, Luke 18, is you have the Jesus and the rich young ruler. So I want you to just listen at the parallel and look at the response of Elisha and the response of the rich young ruler. Look at, look at Luke uh, 18, verse 18. It says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, this is where our memory verse comes out of, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I've kept all these things from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told them, You still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he had become sad, Jesus said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you see two parallels there. Elisha, and then you have the rich young ruler. Now, what adjustments was required of each? What, what adjustments was required uh, for Elijah? Elisha, what was the adjustment that you picked up? 
Okay? And leave, leave everything behind and be the prophet. Here's God's chosen man. Right? Elijah is choosing, you know, God's saying, Elijah, choose Elisha. So what about the rich young leader? What about, what were some adjustments he was required? Sell everything you got, buddy. Okay? Sell everything you got and follow me. Sell everything you got and follow me. And I thought, you know, what if Jesus asked me that? What if Jesus asked you that? And he's asking us that, really. To follow him. Give up everything to follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple. I mean, it really is. What was the response of each? And this is where you get into the difference here. What was the response of Elisha? What did he do? What was his response? He burned it all is what I put. He burned it all and left it all. And he followed. He burned it all. Left it all. Okay? You know, burned the ships. You know, we're not going back. I'm burning. I'm setting fire to everything. Look at the response, though, of the rich young ruler. What was his response? He walked away. Walked away. And the Bible says there in the last verse, walked away sorrowful. Walked away sorrowful. Couldn't do it. Couldn't, he couldn't do it. Couldn't leave it all. Okay? Couldn't leave. You know, he, he'd probably a good guy, probably a nice guy, probably did a lot of things, uh, probably knew a lot of scripture, but he couldn't, he couldn't leave it all and follow Jesus. He couldn't. He wasn't willing to make that adjustment in his life. He wasn't willing to do that. Elisha was, and you see what happened after that. Brother Philip. Don't you think that's one of the major problems with people who blindly from what God has shown them? They're afraid of what he's going to ask them to do. Yeah. Exactly, brother. Yeah, you're exactly right. It goes back to what I just asked uh, the previous day. It says, what is an adjustment you're afraid God might ask you to make if you truly get serious about your walk with him? The thing about it is, how serious are we, are we about our walk with him? And when we get serious, I'm afraid God might ask me to do this or to do that. And that's key, exactly. The young ruler refused to change his priorities and he missed experiencing eternal life. Think about that. I don't, I don't know what happened to the guy. I don't know if he's in heaven today or in hell. But... I mean, only God knows that. But here, what I'm saying, what, what it's looking like is that he was not willing to change his priorities. He was willing to just grab hold of the things of the world, which is so easy to grab hold to. And um, it cost him. It cost him eternal life. He wanted to gain eternal life. I underline this. He wanted to gain eternal life, but he refused to do what was necessary to obtain it. He wanted it. And there's a lot of people today that want it. But they just can't adjust. They can't do what is necessary. And that's calling upon Jesus and having him as Lord of their life. Um, Elisha had to make major changes on the front end of his call. Not until he took those actions did God work through him to accomplish the miracles. Um, question that number eight there says, Do you want to be wholly obedient to God? Well, I mean, I answered yes. I mean, I, I do. That's what I want. I'm sure you did too. The question there says, what do I need to surrender to God so that I am prepared to follow Him anywhere? And that's the thing. 
Yeah. It's full surrender. Yeah. What was the most meaningful statement or scripture that you read through, through day one? Anybody want to share that? The most meaningful thing that you read, maybe that popped out at you? I underline a lot through the week. Uh, anything that popped out at you through the week about making those adjustments? Man, one life, wholly yielded and obedient to him. Can't imagine what God would do in that. I just put, my greatest single difficulty in following God may come at the point of full surrender. I mean, it's getting serious time here. This is, this is serious stuff. God's saying, how serious are you, Kyle? I mean, how serious are you? You know, I mean, it's, I'm asking, if I'm asking you to do this, will you do it? And this is where you're going to really experience who God is. Reword the statement or scripture into a prayer of response, and I just put, Lord, help me to see the adjustments that I need to make to fully surrender you. And, and God, will, will, I trust, will show me that. Uh, flipping over to, to day two, so we look at knowing that adjustments are necessary. We looked at Elijah, who was willing to, you know, he burned everything, made that adjustment, and then he followed Elijah, and then God, of course, blessed him as the prophet. So day two talked about kinds of adjustments. Love day two, and this is where I'm going to kind of share with you a quick video. Um, we might not get to all of the days today because of the video, but we'll get through most of the time. But uh, kinds of adjustments. It says, um, what kinds of adjustments are required to position your life? This is at the top of page 160. What kinds of adjustments are required to position your life to be used by God? Trying to answer that question is like trying to list all the things God might ask you to do. The list could be endless. However, I can point you to some examples and give you some general categories of adjustments. Here, here's some adjustments that God may be asking me and may be asking you to make. Here they are. In your circumstances. Okay? God may be asking you, me, to make adjustments in your job. Think about that. In your home, in your finances, and others. In relationships, family, friends, business associates, others, making adjustments there. In your thinking, prejudices, methods, your potential about your past. In your commitments, God may be asking you to make adjustments with your family, commitments to your church, job, plans, tradition. In your actions, making adjustments in the way you pray, you give, you serve, and serve others. And in your beliefs about who God is, His purposes, His ways, your relationship with him and, and others. And, and the list could go on and on. The major adjustment will come at, this, at the point of acting on your faith. When you face a crisis of belief, this is good, you must decide what you believe about God. The mental decision may be easy. And this is, that's really, I mean, you can mentally say, I believe you, Lord. You know, that's the easy part, right? The hard part, here's the hard part, at least the hard part for me, adjusting my life to God and taking an action that demonstrates that faith. You can think all day long. You can draw it up in your head. I can draw it up in my head all day long. But until I act, I'm just going to stand there. I'm not going to experience who God is and what He's calling me to do to make those adjustments. And of course, it asks you there for question one. It says, uh, from the list of adjustments listed above, from which of the four categories do you struggle the most to make uh, adjustments? And, and, and everybody's is going to be different. We struggle with different things in making those adjustments. Um, I'm going to skip on over uh, to the part about absolute surrender. Um, so 
you have the, the major and, and minor adjustments. And, of course, Dr. Blackery said they're pretty much all major adjustments when you're dealing with God. God's going to ask you to make some major adjustments. Uh, but remember, it's going to be worth it all in the end. Um, absolute surrender. It says, God is not looking for ways to make your life difficult. However, He intends to be the Lord of your life. When you identify a place where you refuse to allow His Lordship, that is an area He will go to work. I underline that. Okay? That's where He's going. In an area, you know, He will keep, he will keep working. It says He's seeking absolute surrender. God may or may not require you to do the thing you, you dread doing, but He will keep working until you're willing for Him to be Lord of all. Remember, God, remember, because God loves you, His will is always best. His will is always best. Any adjustment, underline this, God asked you to make is for my good and your good. Whether that's adjusting in a job that He's calling you to make an adjustment in, or your family life, or you know, your church life, whatever, it's always good. It's always good if God's leading you to do that. It says, in the margin, write at least one adjustment you've made in your thinking as you've studied this course for example, someone might respond, I had to accept the fact that I cannot do anything of kingdom value apart from God. Instead of doing things for God, I'm now watching and praying to see what God wants to do through me. And I don't mind sharing one thing that I'm constantly, that since I've been doing this through the past eight weeks, one thing that every day, I know Katie and I have both uh, together have really tried to, to, to look for this, but I put, since I've been going through these eight weeks, I'm thinking and watching more in how God will use me, watching where He is working. I have more, I guess, now just in my daily life, in my daily interactions with students and, and, and going to the restaurant or whatever. I try to now watch and look for opportunities to where God's working in people that I come across. Um, you know, I shared with you last week about the young student that I had that's great-grandmother had a stroke. You know, and, and I, God said, hey, tell, tell them you're praying for them. I just, you know, and, and, and I told them that. I said, hey, look, I'm on, what's your grandmother's name? I want, to pray, I want to pray for your grandmother. And he told me. And, you know, that, that's an opportunity. And you don't know what God would do with that opportunity. It's just little bits. And I think we overlook those. I have in, in my, we get so caught up in our job that really, in, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't really matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Uh, I mean, but, but what matters is those spiritual things that, that God puts in our past to, to look for, where's he working? And that, that's what I'm, I'm doing, and God's really helping me. And I, I missed those opportunities. I told you about that last week. I, was, uh, I bought a TV for my classroom, and um, I was trying to load it, and, you know, those guys came to help me load it, and I didn't share with them about God, didn't share with them about anything, and that was an opportunity that I squandered. So, you know, still, I, I fail at that, but I'm looking for those opportunities and making those adjustments there to where God's working. Uh, I really love part six here, and this is where we're going to kind of try to hurry a little bit. But um, it says, read the following statements that were made by godly men. Under each statement, describe the kind of adjustment the person made or was willing to make. For example, one adjustment David Livingstone was prepared to make was to live in poverty as a missionary in Africa rather than to have wealth as a physician in his homeland. But, but look at these quotes. I, I love quotes I, I, from, from, um, from theologians and, and just from great men and women that God has used in the past. Um, she's not on here, or these two individuals, these two ladies are not on here, but if you 
Um, uh, if you ever have heard of Elizabeth Elliott, which is Jim Elliott's wife, um, man, she is just so rich in, in her um, in God working through her uh, and some of the th- stuff that she's talked about about suffering. And then uh, Amy Carmichael uh, is, is also a, a woman of great faith um, who uh, pretty much ran an orphanage in India, who had surrendered everything to move to India to run an orphanage to help girls who were, being, who were used as sacrifices to the Hindu gods in India. And, uh, I mean, it's just major, uh, Elizabeth Elliot and Amy Carmichael, along with these men here. It's not just men, but women as well. But David Livingstone said this. He said, forbid, this is what he's talking about, how, how going to, to live in poverty uh, rather than to have wealth as a physician. Now, think about it. Listen to what he says. He says, forbid that we should ever consider the holding of a commission from the king of kings a sacrifice. So long as other men esteem the service of an earthly government as an honor, I am a missionary heart and soul. God himself had, only, had an only son, and he was a missionary and a physician. A poor, poor imitation I am, or wish to be, but in this service I hope to live. In it I wish to die. I still prefer poverty and mission service to riches and ease. This is my choice. That's rich, folks. I read that and I'm like, wow. This guy's a doctor. He said, I don't care. My Jesus was a doctor. He was a physician. He was a missionary. And I am nothing to him. No imitation. I'll come back to Jim Elliott at the end. Bob Pierce established world vision in Samaritan's Purse. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. His adjustment was brokenheartedness. You know? Um, C.T. Studd, a missionary to China, India, and Africa, he says, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to give for him. What adjustments did he have to make? What was his adjustment? Do I have that written down? Sacrificing everything. No matter the cost. No matter the cost. Then one that I'd never read before there, Oswald J. Smith, and this really, really, really jumped out at me. He was a missionary statesman to Canada, of Canada. He says, I want thy plan, O God, for my life. May I be happy and contented with, whether in the homeland or on the foreign field, whether married or alone, in happiness or sorrow, health or sickness, prosperity or adversity. I want thy plan, O God, for my life. I want it, O I want it. That's somebody wants it. He, he mentioned that three times. He wants the plan. He wants the plan. Whether married or alone, happiness or sorrow, health or sickness, prosperity or adversity, I want the plan, I want the plan, I want the plan. Wow. And then, of course, Jim Elliott. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Jim Elliott, but Jim Elliott is, God, you talk about a man of God that God used and, I mean, I've read his biography, if you ever get a chance. I mean, it, it, is, it is great. It's a movie made about him. Uh, but he was speared to death by Aka Indians in Ecuador. And this was a man that was considered, talking about Billy Graham, up there with Billy Graham. Grew up during the 50s, preacher, 
charisma. God was using him. Graduate of Wheaton College where Billy Graham went. I mean, these are contemporaries. Jim Elliott was a contemporary of, of Billy Graham. But Jim Elliott, of course, Billy Graham reached millions of people, but so did Jim Elliott with his life. And his obedience reaches today people of what he did when he followed God's, when he made an adjustment, when he left it all in the States. I mean, he was on the rise, but he left it all. Him and his wife, Elizabeth, I mentioned her a while ago. And Jim Elliott said this, and I love this quote. It's one of his most famous quotes. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's one of my favorite Jim Elliott quotes. And this is a guy who went to a people group that were cannibals. They were cannibals. Knew nothing of who God was, but he, along with four other guys, wanted to reach these, these people in Ecuador. Left it all, went down there, learned Spanish, learned the language, wanted to reach them. And it cost him his life. He was spared to death. But, but, there's a great story on the other end of that. And what I want to do, I want to I show you this quick video about, about Jim Elliott. Uh, you may not know about him. But uh, you talk about someone that made a major adjustment in his life to follow God's call. It was Jim Elliott. Brother Philip. If we did that, Jeremiah was a failure because no one, I mean, no one came to Christ during Jeremiah. He was just the weeping prophet. You can't, you can't judge that. You can't go by that. But yeah, that, that's that full surrender. Exactly. No matter the cost. Take a look at this video. You may have to look to the right. We had a bulb to go out this morning on this projector, but I think you'll be okay. And uh, just watch this, this video about the story of Jim Elliott. The Great Commission begins wherever you are, then it reaches to the ends of the earth. Some see a missionary's life as one of sacrifice, but one of my favorite missionaries, Jim Elliott, had a different perspective. He wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. I'm reminded of the passage in Luke 24 that says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Jim Elliott and his companions took those words with them when they traveled to take the gospel to the Huarani tribespeople in the rainforests of Ecuador. Between the Napo and Curare rivers in Ecuador, an area of about 7,000 square miles made the tribal area of the Huarani. There were about 600 people total, making three smaller groups within the greater tribe. All three groups were equally hostile. The Gikataiti, the Baidi, and Waipaiti. The tribes were generally hunter-gatherers and their weapons of choice were spears and blowguns. The Huarani violently defended their territory and any outsiders were deeply distrusted. It was generally believed that most outsiders were cannibal predators. 
They had already killed several Shell Oil employees in the 1940s, as well as many outsiders that trespassed on their lands. The violence was not only limited to outsiders, as they would have many intertribal skirmishes. Revenge killings were frequent, as well as raids on houses fueled by intense anger. Jim Elliott first heard about the Huarani in 1950 from another Ecuadorian missionary and quickly realized it was his calling to lead an outreach to the tribe's people. Elliott met up with Pete Fleming to take on this mission. Fleming and Elliott traded notes on the potential ministry opportunities in Ecuador and by 1952 were sailing for Guayaquil on mission with the Plymouth Brethren. For six months, they lived in Quito and learned Spanish. Then they moved on to a mission station deep in the jungles of Ecuador. They studied the culture and language of the locals. Elliot and Fleming would need more help to reach the tribe. In one journal entry, Elliot recorded his prayer for a team. I have prayed for new men, fiery, reckless men, possessed of uncontrollably youthful passion, lit by the Spirit of God. I have prayed for new words, explosive, direct, simple words. I have prayed for new miracles, Lord, fill preachers and preaching with thy power. How long dare we go on without tears, without moral passions, hatred, and love? Not long, I pray, Lord Jesus, not long. Elliot's prayers were answered when Ed McCauley and Nate Saint joined the team. Elliot met McCauley while attending Wheaton College. Nate Saint, the team's pilot, served in the military during the Second World War and was trained to fly by the Army. Saint had already been shuttling supplies into other missionaries in the jungle. Also joining the team was Roger Udarian, who was already stationed in Ecuador for missions work. He worked with Nate Saint to provide important medical supplies. The first stage of Operation Aka was to locate the Harani by air. In September 1955, Saint, McCulley, Elliot, and missionary Johnny Keegan began periodic searches using the mission's plane. Locating a few clearings in the jungle, the team began to get hopeful. They found a sandbar in the middle of the Curare River that worked as a landing strip for the plane, and it was there that they first made contact with the Haorani. They were elated to be able to finally be able to attempt to share the love of Christ with this people group. They hoped that by regularly giving gifts to the Haorani and attempting to communicate with them in their language, that they would be able to win them over as friends. On October 6th, this month in history in 1955, they made the first contact with the tribes by dropping a package containing a kettle, buttons, and rock salt. The gift giving continued during the following weeks with missionaries dropping machetes, ribbons, clothing, pots, and various trinkets. Jim Elliott and his group began making frequent flights over the land of the Huarani in September 1955, dropping gifts from a plane. They eventually established a base camp along the sandbar on the Kuare River. It was difficult and risky to meet the dangerous Harani on the surface, so the team used their fixed-wing aircraft to drop gifts down on them from above. Nate Saint developed their drop technique, which involved flying tight circles around the drop zone while simultaneously lowering the package to the ground. He was able to do this in a vortex motion that had the effect of keeping the package perfectly centered while in descent. After several visits to the landing zone, nicknamed Terminal City, they observed that the Hurarani seemed positive about receiving their gifts. So they decided to initiate verbal contact over the loudspeaker, shouting simple Hurarani phrases 
while it was circling over their heads. Several drops later, the Hurarani began to tie gifts of their own for the missionaries as a gesture of thanks. They then developed plans to meet person. As the mission continued, Elliot would continue to journal about the team's plans and how God was always in control. He wrote, The will of God is always a bigger thing than we bargained for, but we must believe that whatever it involves, it is good, acceptable, and perfect. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. On January 3rd, they successfully landed on Palm Beach and set up base camp. After the last delivery of supplies, he flew over a Harani settlement and using a loudspeaker, invited the Harani to come visit the missionaries' camp. After the missionaries had spent several days of waiting around and shouting general Harani phrases into the jungle, the first Harani visitors arrived on January 6th. It was a young man and two women. The younger woman had come disobediently against the warning of her family. The man, Nankiwi, was romantically interested in her, so he followed. The older woman went along to ensure she was safe. The missionaries gave them many gifts, and after a time, the tribal people soon relaxed around the strange Americans. Nankiwi, whom the missionaries nicknamed George, was very interested in their aircraft, so Saint gave him a ride. They flew all around the jungle, and even by Nankiwi's neighbors, where he leaned out of the plane waving and shouting at them. The plane stunt by Nankiwi was too much to ignore, and a group of Harani decided to make the trip to Palm Beach the next morning, January 7th. On the way there, they found Nankiwi and the girl without their escort. A senior member of the group, who had considerable experience with outsiders, gave his advice on how to handle the situation. He recommended they kill the foreigners. The older woman eventually returned and gave her account of the stranger's friendliness, but this was not enough to dissuade them, and they kept marching toward the Palm Beach. On January 8th, after a few recon trips, the pilot Nate Saint located a group of Huarani men headed toward Palm Beach and enthusiastically relayed the info to his wife over radio. The Haurani sent three women to the other side of the river as an attempt to divide the Americans before attacking. One tribesman, Dawa, stayed behind, hiding in the jungle brush. The other two revealed themselves and two missionaries waded into the water to say hello. They were immediately attacked from behind by the girl's brother, Nampa. Elliot was the first missionary to be speared. The other missionary in the river, Fleming, before being speared, desperately reiterated friendly sayings and asked the Harani why they were killing them. While he pleaded for his life, the other three missionaries were being surrounded and speared by the other band of Harani warriors. Eudarian rushed to the plane to use the radio, but he was speared as soon as he picked up the microphone. The Harani threw their bodies and their things into the river and tore the fabric from the aircraft. After returning to their village, they curiously burned it down, apparently expecting a revenge attack and wanting the fool into thinking an attack had already been placed. The men failing to communicate with their wives at the scheduled time caused them to worry, but the women kept it under wraps due to the secretive nature of the mission. A fellow missionary flew to the campsite to check on them and found the plane stripped of its fabric. He told the wives of the situation and that the men were not there. The United States Air Rescue mobilized an aircraft and in coordination with ground search, the first two bodies were found on Wednesday, January 11th. By the next day, all the bodies had been identified with the exception of Macaulay's. 
The locals returned his watch, claiming they found his body on the bank, but it had washed away. The identified bodies were buried in the same grave at Palm Beach on January 14th by the ground search party. The deaths of the men were covered in Life magazine, including photographs taken just before their deaths. The worldwide publicity that followed gave much more visibility to mission organizations and access to resources. Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and one of the sisters, Rachel Saint, believed the men's sacrifice for the Huarani people was similar to Christ's sacrifice for humanity. They both doubled down on their family's commitment to the people by remaining in Ecuador and working alongside the Huarani tribe. Leading several cross-tribe weddings, they were successful in ending the intertribal warfare among the groups and largely eliminated the rampant violence that plagued the people for so long. During his life, Jim Elliott longed for more people to become missionaries. In his death, however, he probably inspired more people to go to other countries to share the love of Jesus than he ever could have in his life. The resounding theme of October's Missions Month is the boundless love of Jesus in fulfilling the Great Commission. All of these missionaries gave their life for the gospel. Their stories will continue to echo throughout history. During his life, Jim Elliott longed for more people to become missionaries. In his death, however, he probably inspired more people to go to other countries to share the love of Jesus than he ever could have in life. What a story. I don't know if you saw the quote there from Jim Elliott. He said, the will of God is always a bigger thing than we bargain for. But we must believe that whatever it involves, it is good, acceptable, and perfect. I seek not a long life. This is a great quote from him. I seek not a long life, but a full one. Like you, Lord Jesus. A full one. And that's what he sought. And I don't, know if, I don't know if you picked up on the ending part, but they kill the five men. And Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, then goes to Ecuador, goes into that same tribe, killed her husband now. She has a young daughter who's like two, three years old. Right, Katie? Around that age. Goes in and lives among the people that killed her husband and reaches that tribe for Jesus. In fact, one of them who was part of spearing her own husband. And you think about that. And today, in 2020, that tribe is now reached, along with other tribes, along with other tribes, along with other tribes in Ecuador. You see how God used that? God used an adjustment. Jim Elliott gave it all up here, went there to reach this tribe for the gospel, and you see now how God's used his obedience and his adjustment he made to reach millions and millions of people. So that's just an awesome story. I, I mis, misspoke. The, 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 uh, the tribe there were not cannibals, but they thought that outsiders were cannibals. I'd said that. They were not a cannibalistic tribe, but they thought that the outsiders were cannibals. And, um, of course, they weren't. And then uh, Katie, had me and her, was talking, and she had said this from... She'd heard Elizabeth Elliot say that their language was so unknown, their language, this tribe, that the phrases the guys thought they had in that language were actually not even accurate. And so, you know, they were, they were just trying to, to, to share the gospel, to spread the gospel, took, was obedient in doing that, and, and of course, uh, uh, 
God has worked tremendously. If you ever want to watch the documentary on that, it's called Through the Gates of Splendor. And I suggest that you watch that. And it's the story of Jim Elliott and these four guys. And um, it, it is so awesome. Through the Gates of Splendor. Uh, there was also a movie uh, entitled The End of the Spear. Uh, is about that. But Through the Gates of Splendor is actually told by Elizabeth. So it's very accurate. It's about two hours long. Um, but it, it is so awesome, just the, the stories. And it gets into the early part of Jim Elliott's life and those other guys. Uh, one of the guys, uh, Katie, I can't remember which one, but um, it wasn't Nate Saint, but it was another guy. He was an up-and-coming lawyer. He was an up-and-coming lawyer. Like, he was a big-time lawyer. Had big firm, wanting him to come. And he left it. And he was speared in the middle of Ecuador. Jim Elliott, I told you, was up there with Billy Graham, a contemporary, left it all, made that adjustment, and was speared in the middle of Ecuador. But was it worth it? It was worth it. It was worth it. And so I just wanted to, to, to share that with you uh, before we're, we're through tonight. One other thing, and, um, and we will, we'll watch the video, but I just wanted to mention that um, with that adjustment that, uh, that Jim Elliott made. But if you'll go uh, back to, and we'll just close up here with uh, uh, the um, week four, or I'm sorry, not week four, but day, uh, day three, where it talked about obedience is costly. And, um, you know, I'll just uh, kind of briefly go over a couple of things here. And it talks about, um, of course, Paul and what he had to give up, uh, the life that he knew. Um, and um, number three there, when it talks about obedience is costly, it says, why do you think a cost is often required to follow Christ? Why do you think that? Why, why do you think a cost is often required to follow Christ? What did you put there? Anybody? This is number three on page 165. Yeah. I just put, Christ wants to see where our allegiance is. He wants to see where our allegiance is. It's going to cost us. He wants to see if we're for real or not. He wants to see if where our allegiance is. Um, it, goes, it goes through uh, um, the cost of enduring opposition. You know, you're going to face opposition. Page 165. And he, Dr. Blackaby talks about the opposition that they faced um, when uh, they were sensing God calling them to start new churches. Not everyone understood or agreed. Some actively opposed. Some demanded we stop. They said our efforts were of the devil. They, they opposed the Bible study we were having. Um, our pastor was cursed by a witch doctor. <laughs> I received letters condemning our efforts. Um, and some of these were from so-called Christians. And, you know, when we're called to obey, it's going to cost us something. It cost Jim Elliott his life going in full obedience. What's it costing me? What's, what's it going to cost you? It's going to cost us. Uh, what types of costs might be involved for someone to obey what God asked them to do today? Think about that. If God's asking you to do something, what would be the cost? I, I put, you know, your job could, could be the end of your job. Um. Your family, been made fun of, status. Um, think about Paul, and we'll close with this. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 33. I've got nothing on Paul. 
I mean, he says, I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. These are some of the things that Paul experienced. I received 40 lashes minus one. I was beaten with a rod. I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day in the open sea. Dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, without food, cold, and without clothing. Not to mention, mention other things. There was a daily pressure on me. My concern for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. If I must boast, I will boast of, of the things that show my weakness, the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Obedience, I underline this, was costly to Paul. It says, have you ever experienced, have you ever had to, an experience in which your adjustment or obedience to God was costly? Costly. I'm not going to ask you to share, but if anybody wanted to share, you could. Brother Philip. See, and you can see God in that. See God in that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Philip. Um, what was the most meaningful statement of Scripture you read this week? What was the most meaningful thing you read through day three? It was power-packed full of stuff. Here's what I put, and I underlined it, and this hit me as well this week. We say Christ is Lord and He can interrupt our plans anytime. We just don't expect Him to do it. <laughs> I wrote that out. We say Christ is Lord and He can interrupt our plans anytime He wants. We just don't expect Him to do it. And, you know, the prayer there is interrupt my plans <laughs> and cause me to obey, help me to clearly see it. And then look for adjustments that I need to make to experience Him. That was uh, some things for that day. Anybody else want to share anything in regards to that? Something that jumped out at you there, week three, day three? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Right. Amen. That's right. Yeah. 
That's right. Yeah. If you're not receiving the heat, something may be wrong. Yeah. Thank you, Maynard. Appreciate that. Somebody had something else? Somebody say? Kim? Yeah. You, we're, I'm not going to experience it without adjusting and, and obeying. And I can talk about it all day long, but if I'm not willing to make those adjustments and obey, then it's not going to happen. Well, and, and, and two, day five this week, and we'll get, I'll let um, Dr. Blackerby and his son get it, but it, it talked about waiting, total dependence on who God is, and um, waiting on him to work, not jumping the gun, not doing what we want to do, but waiting until, you know, he's moving and, and uh, you know, it brings out that dependence on him. I want to go ahead and, and, and show us the, the video, and uh, we'll close out with that. And, Dad, you can finish up when this video is over with. But this is uh, in your book there on page, uh, it's 174, I'm sorry, not 174, uh, 176, 177, 177. There's the video notes there. You can jot down there on page 177 is... Uh, uh, Dr. Blackby and his, his son finishes up on uh, this last, or the session eight. But let's go ahead and view the video, and, and we'll be finished after that. My first summer out of high school, I helped a church plant that was near my hometown. We did a lot of things that summer, but one of the things we did was uh, trying to reach the families in that community. So we did uh, camps and activities uh, for kids, and uh, after a whole summer of doing that, we wanted to go out with a bang with one last hurrah, and so we did this big kids activity. The kids loved it. At the end of it all, we were exhausted. We are packing everything up. We're all going to pack up and, and go back home, start school in the fall and, and all of that. And so we're saying our goodbyes. And, and I get into my task-driven mode of cleaning up and getting ready to, to be done. And in my mind, I'm finished with the activity. I've moved on to the next thing. And while I'm doing that, I feel a little tug on my shirt. There were these three little girls that were at the outreach event that we had done. And they were asking me, Mr. Mike, Mr. Mike, can we have a piggyback ride? 
and uh, I'm tired. This is the end of this, uh, this whole thing that we've done. And the last thing I want to do is give these little girls a piggyback ride. Uh, but I'm like, all right, this one, one last time. And so uh, I, I get them all arranged in this field. I'm like, I'm going to take you first, and then I'll drop you off over there. That's where you're going to be waiting. And uh, we get all situated, and I start running with that first little girl on my back. And uh, I've never really had great cardio. And so by the time I drop her off and get the second one, uh, I'm already starting to feel it. My legs are sore. They're burning. My heart's pumping, sweating. By the time that third little girl jumps on my back and I bring her uh, to the end, uh, I'm just dying. And so I drop her off. They run off squealing and laughing, and I'm just laying in the grass. I'm thinking, man, uh, I need my heart to stop pumping. I can't catch my breath. And while I'm laying there, I look off to the side, and it's like God just draws my attention to this little girl who's watching from the sidelines. Her name was Martha. She was a shy little girl that had been at several of the events that we had done, and I know she's never going to come up to me and ask for a piggyback ride, but I can see it in her eyes that she would love to have one. And so I pick myself up, walk over to her, hey Martha, do you want a piggyback ride too? Her eyes just light up, yeah, I would love one. All right, Martha, well, this is going to be the craziest piggyback ride you've ever experienced. So she jumps on my back, and I'm running all over this field with her. We're like running up on the playground, and uh, it's just the best time. She's laughing and having the best time, and uh, my, my heart's pumping. And uh, when I finally get to the end, I drop her off, and I just collapse. I'm exhausted. My legs aren't working anymore. And while I'm laying there thinking, this might be the end for me, go out with a bang, I see her parents show up, and she goes running to her parents, jumps into her father's arms, and I can just hear her excitedly tell him, did you see me, Dad? Did you see I had the best piggyback ride? This, this whole event has been so fun. I love this. This is so much fun. And, and I'm watching this take place, and uh, it just brings a little smile to my face. Like, oh, that's great. How, how, how good for her. Well, get back to my task. I pack up my stuff, and I go home, and I start school in the fall, and it's a few weeks later, I actually get a letter in the mail from one of the uh, staff of that church plant. And it said a bunch of things about thanking us for being there, but at the very end of the letter, it just said, and by the way, I don't know if you remember that little girl, Martha, but she has brought her parents to church every week since that event that you guys did at the end of the summer. And I realized God was at work in this little girl's life, and I could have completely missed it if I was just focused on my own task, uh, if I just uh, was focused on what was right in front of me, I could have missed what, what God was doing. But when he alerted me to his activity, it came to a point where I had to decide, am I going to adjust from my agenda onto God's agenda? Because if we're going to join God in his activity, it's going to require adjustments. Why? Well, in Isaiah chapter 55, God says that his ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. What does that mean? It means that we're not naturally going to do God's will because God's will is beyond what we would normally think and do. And so if we're going to know and do God's will, he's going to have to show us what it is. All throughout the Bible, you see God inviting people to move from their plans and their agenda onto his. Abraham is called to leave his homeland. Moses is called out of the desert to go back to Egypt. Gideon is called to lead an army. Joshua is called to lead an army around a city. 
Peter and Andrew are called to leave their fishing boats and follow Jesus. The rich young ruler is called to sell his possessions and give to the poor and follow Jesus. Matthew is called to leave his tax booth and follow Jesus. In all of these circumstances, people are called to, to do something they probably would have never otherwise done. And if we refuse to make adjustments in our lives, we will never be ready to join God in his activity. Remember a, a church planter friend of mine, uh, early on in his church plant, had uh, done some camps for kids in the city, just some small camps, but, but they had gone real well. And he was following up with some of the campers by bringing them Bibles to their homes. And uh, while he was doing that, he was praying. He was saying, God, what's the next opportunity that you have for us? Where are you at work in the city so that we can join you? Well, that same day, he gets a call from a resort hotel in the city. And they say, hey, the, the teacher strike is, is about to happen. Kids across the city are not going to have anything to do. Would your church partner with us to do a series of camps for four weeks? And uh, uh, could, could you do that with us? We've, we've seen that you've done some camps recently. Would you partner with us uh, to do this for the city? He says, well, when, when do you want to start? They say, in six days. So he says, give me a day to pray about it. And he prays and he decides that God is calling us into this opportunity. So he tells them, we'll do it. We'll do five camps. And then the resort said that they would do another two camps. So now he's got five days to try and find volunteers for these camps. Normally he would have six to 12 months. Uh, this is a church plant in Canada. Uh, he, he emails everybody he knows in Canada and in the United States for help. And guess what happens? People in the church take weeks off of work in order to, to help. The church is only about 20 people at this time, but they are all in. People in the States start buying plane tickets and flying up to help for weeks. And uh, the reason they could is because they had an updated passport, they had money set aside for missions, and they had time off work banked so that they could join God when they saw the opportunity. Pastors of these churches had encouraged their people to be ready to make the adjustment when the time came. And so for the next four weeks, they lead these six camps and hundreds of kids from the cities come. Every camp is full. Uh, they do this incredible job. It actually lined up right when they were going to launch their weekly services. And so when they start launching their weekly worship gatherings, all these people from those camps uh, become the core of their brand new church plant. And they've done camps for the city every year since then. You know, when we see an opportunity to join God in his work, we have to be ready to make the adjustment into his activity. And if we don't, it might just mean that we miss the activity of God that he is inviting us into. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, if anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. This settles the issue of lordship right at the beginning. So we're no longer the leader of our own lives, but we watch to see where Jesus would lead us, and that's where we go. And so we constantly adjust our lives in the direction of where he leads us. In order to move forward, you're gonna to have to leave something behind. In order to follow Jesus, you're gonna to have to adjust your life to follow where he leads you. And so settle the issue of lordship in your heart today so that you'll be ready and prepared to make any adjustments necessary to follow where he leads.
making adjustments to God is oftentimes one of the more difficult of the seven realities. When, when we think about God pursuing us with a love relationship or God inviting us to join him, that, that can sound pretty exciting. Like, sure, God, I'll go with you. But then God says, wait, first you have to make an adjustment. <laughs> and the adjustments become the part that is difficult for us. If it was just a matter of, I'll just follow Jesus just the way I am and I'll just, I'll follow him but stay right where I am and, and do the same things I've always done the way I like to do them, then following Jesus wouldn't be that difficult. But those adjustments are really where it separates those who are ready to go with God and those who aren't. Yeah, they're hard because we like to be in control of our lives. We like to make decisions for ourselves. And, and really, when it comes down to it, none of us really like change, especially if that change leads us into places that are uncomfortable, uh, as often it will be uncomfortable when God calls us into his activity. And so those adjustments can be difficult because it shakes things up in our lives when, when maybe we want to stay comfortable. What it can also mean is that God needs to make some adjustments in us first. Maybe adjustments in our character before we can make adjustments to follow what he's leading us to do. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that we just presume upon God. We'll say, God, I'll follow you, but I want to live within the same county as my parents. Or uh, I'll, I'll minister to this kind of people, but I don't really care for that kind of people. Or as long as you let me minister in my strengths, that's great, but don't ever ask me to do anything in my weaknesses. And uh, there's so many different kinds of adjustments at times that God will ask. And I remember when I was a pastor, I came to a church and I was doing the very best that I could. I was giving the people my very best, but God at a certain point convinced me that my people didn't need my best, they needed his best. And for that, I needed to adjust my life to God and his activity. And I remember one day just working as hard as I could and just not seeing the results that I really wanted to see in my church. And I got kind of frustrated. And I, I remember going into my office and, and praying to God and saying, God, why are you not blessing the work I'm doing? I'm doing this for you. I'm doing it for your church. And uh, the problem with asking God a question is that you have to be ready for his response. And what God said to me is, I'm giving you all the blessing that your character can handle. And I'll tell you, that was a devastating moment for me because I was still a young man, uh, even younger than you are now. And uh, and I, I realized I would have a very long, fruitless ministry unless I was willing to make some adjustments. And so I, I remember just bowing my head and saying, then God, whatever you have to change in me, I don't wanna spend the rest of my life struggling and frustrated and experiencing lack of uh, success and blessing just because I wasn't willing to change. As painful as it might be, change whatever you have to. So I'm the kind of person that you can use in a mighty way. And I'll tell you, the next year was, without a doubt, up to that point, the hardest year of ministry in my life. I, I had people criticize me nonstop. I was blamed for everything under the sun. World hunger was somehow traced back to my poor leadership. And, uh, 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 and uh, people left the church and they always blamed me. And, and, and my pride took a beating and uh, my, all, all my sense of uh, self-worth as a pastor was shaken. But I'll tell you something, at the end of that year, God began doing things in our church that we'd never seen before. And we reached more people, uh, saw more people come to Christ than we'd seen in any time that I'd been as a pastor to that point. And I'll never forget uh, one day just realizing what God had done. And in that moment, I realized I had always been one humble, desperate prayer away from the greatest work of God that he'd ever done in my life. But until I was ready to make those adjustments, I was stuck. 
I, I see a lot of, of Christians today who are stuck where they are. They're stuck, as the same kind of Christian they've been for 10, 20 years. They pray the same way, they serve the same way. They're, they're just, they haven't moved forward in their walk with God. And oftentimes those people, uh, they're really only one adjustment to God away from the best walk with God they've ever had. Yeah, our problem is that oftentimes we would prefer to stay where we are uh, because it's what we know. And even if we, even if we know we're not what we should be, and even if we don't even like who we are or where we are, oftentimes because it's familiar, we'll choose to just stay that way uh, rather than stepping out into something that is unknown or unfamiliar. And it takes humility to, to come to that place of realization where I'm not all that I could be. And in order for God to get me there, he might have to do some things in my life and take me through some things that are gonna shape me and that process may be uncomfortable, but if I want to get there, I'm going to have to go through this in order to get there. And if we never become the servant of God, the person of God that he wants us to be, it doesn't just cost us. It always costs others because we never did what God wanted to equip us to do. And so our question for you in this session would simply be, what adjustments do you need to make so that you are dead center where God would have you to be today? Kyle, for sharing tonight. Uh, one of my favorite chapters in this book is an adjustment, the adjustments that we have to make, the adjusting, adjusting your life to God. And we all have to make those adjustments if we're going to be where God wants us to be. One of my favorite uh, side notes is, is that Moses could not uh, stay where he was on the backside of the desert and go with God at the same time. In order for him to do what God wanted him to do, he had to make some adjustments. The same way, same way in my life, I'm sure in your life, at times we have to make those adjustments. I know when, uh, when I was in retail and uh, um, I'd spoken to God years before about going full-time in ministry and, and when I would do this and God brought that about. And so I had to make a decision where to make some adjustments and go with God or, or stay where I was at. And so I was willing to make those adjustments. And so I gave up a job. We relocated, came here, came to Phil Campbell, started back to school. We had a daughter, about a year old. Those were adjustments. I'd made more money than I'd ever made in my life, took a part-time job. Those were some adjustments. Lived in the projects there, Nick's projects. and and. Um, God took care of us, um, and uh, later on sent us, brought us here to this church. And so, but it, it all came about by being willing to make some adjustments. And uh, not only individuals, I mentioned churches also. We've had to make some adjustments here in the past several years. And I remember when we built the building that, that was destroyed in a tornado, there was a lot of adjustments that we had to make. And we have to be careful not to get ahead of God. And to, uh, I know years, uh, well, a few years into the ministry, with the other, at, uh, before we built the other building, God was blessing, sending people, but it just wasn't the right time to build a building. It wasn't the right time. 
God kept saying, wait, you need to wait, you need to wait. And then God uh, began to work, and God brought us all together. Um, not all together, you'll never get all Baptists together, I found that out. But he, he brought uh, enough together where he says, it's time to go, it's time to go ahead and do what, uh, what I want you to do. And so we did as a church, and the others that uh, uh, opposed the building of that previous building, uh, they later came in, came into uh, agreement and helped and worked hard and, and God really blessed. And uh, I'm reminded of another church that I'm aware of that felt like it was God's will for them to relocate, and, but God had not brought the people together. And, but they went ahead and felt like they needed to relocate and and so they voted, and I think it was three votes difference to relocate, not relocate. Three, three votes more that wanted to relocate, and the other uh, above those that didn't want to relocate. And so they decided to go ahead and relocate with only three difference in the vote. And it was obvious God had not brought everyone together, uh, the majority together, a large majority, a good majority. And so uh, anyway, uh, long story short, the church split. Some went one direction, others went another direction. Some stayed at the church. But uh, uh, in a situation like that, you need to just pull back and say, it's obvious ever, you know, God's people are not all together in this, or the greater majority are not, so let's wait on God. And so that's, that's what we did, and it worked out great, and, and God was glorified and honored. And so it works as with churches, we have to make adjustments too. And so we have to, to make sure that follow these same principles perhaps in, in, in the church life as well as we do in our own personal lives. I was talking to a preacher this past week on the trip and he shared about leading a church to relocate. And the church was declining, is running around 200, but it was a major city church. And they, he felt like the Lord was leading the church to, to relocate. And, and so they, the majority of the church were in agreement, a good majority of the church, probably 80% or better. But, uh, but yet he went through, a, not everybody uh, thinks that, and he mentioned this, I believe Cal mentioned it, it may not be what everyone thinks you need to do. I remember when I surrendered to the call of, to preach, I had a, person that's very close to me said, well, you know, preachers have a hard time. You need to think about it before you give up your job and go full-time in ministry. They really have a hard time. Well, I was so excited. I thought that person would be excited, but I found out not everybody's excited uh, like you are. And so uh, I was talking to this guy, and, and so he, he led the church, and the church was in agreement, and they relocated, but he suffered a lot because... Uh, of making that decision. And he shared about one thing, I'll share this week, he shared one thing about how their cat came up missing, their family cat. And one day they found the collar of the cat in their mailbox. And the cat never showed back up. And then uh, they detected a terrible odor and someone had put that cat in the crawl space of the house and locked the door and the cat died. Now, that's, not everybody agrees. Not everybody accepts what 
you feel like the Lord's will is for your life. You may have family members that won't accept what you feel like the Lord's will is for your life. And so, but you have to make sure this is God's will. I'm going to make the necessary adjustments and I'm going to go with God. And you go ahead and go with God and expect, uh, you know, you expect the consequences, whatever they might be, the positive or, or the negative. But we need to understand that, that we need to make adjustments. And they may, you know, we may suffer the consequences for it. But if it's God's will, it's going to do what's going to work out. I can't imagine what we'd have been like if we were still in a little building that, that seated 100 people if the choir stayed up in the choir loft. And so, obviously, it was God's will for us to go on and, move, uh, and, and build, and that's what we did in a sense, build another building. But uh, we had to make sure that that's what God wants us to do. He'll bring the body together. Just remember that. He'll, he will make it evident that, uh, that this is what his will is. But then it's up to us to, uh, to make the adjustments. And, uh, and it's hard to do at times, and especially it is for a church also. But anyway, uh, tonight we're going to close with a song. Use this time just to pray and ask God, God, I'm, maybe you're going through something right now in your life, you're really struggling, and you need God to be real clear about what he wants you to do. Maybe a major decision you're trying to make, and God, I really, I really need to know for sure this is your will or not. And I'm willing, I surrender everything to you. I'm willing to do what you want me to do, but just I want to make sure this is your will and ask him to reveal that to you tonight and then follow through on what he says. So he may say wait, or he may say you need to go ahead and make the adjustment, regardless what that decision is. Make that adjustment, and I'm with you, and I'm going to take care of you. And when you make those adjustments, remember it, it's, it really says more about what you think of God than what you think really about yourself. Does God have the power to do what he's asking me to do? Does he have, you know, does, will he supply all of my needs after what he's asking me to do? And then go ahead and be willing to step out. You know, oftentimes we don't know. Goodness, all the fear I've known is gone. 
Shadow. 